You are listening to the Sermons Podcast of First Baptist Church, Mount Washington. Well, I invite you to turn to Romans chapter 5 this morning. Romans chapter 5. We're uh, continuing our study in this great letter. Uh, You'll be happy to know that we're picking up the pace today and looking at three verses. uh, And we we could be getting faster and building some momentum. We're going to look at verses 6 through 8 this morning. This is a great text to think about. Um, the Lord's Supper uh, that we're going to be uh, partaking in in just a few minutes. Steve Lawson calls this passage, verses 6 through 8, the John 3.16 of Romans, uh, but in a much more uh, robust or theological way, the John 3.16 of Romans. So I want to pick up at the end of verse 5, um, at God's love. God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What a word. Let's pray. Lord, uh, we do pray as, as we began our service with Paul who desired for us to comprehend the height and, and depth of your love for us. And uh, so we pray that prayer even now. And I pray that you would use me as your servant today. I pray that you would increase and I would decrease and your word would go forth. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Paul has been talking here in Romans 5 about all of these blessings that we, that we have, these gifts, uh, the assurance of our salvation. Uh, since we have been justified, verse 1, we have peace with God. Uh, verse 2, we have access into grace. Uh, we have the hope of the glory of God. Uh, verses 3 and 4, we're enabled to rejoice in suffering. Uh, Verse 5, the Holy Spirit has been given to us. And then the Spirit has poured out God's love in our hearts. And it's as if Paul, when he gets to this point, it's like he, he, he simply can't mention the love of God and just move on to what he has to say next. He has to pause and to expand and to remind us of God's love. He wants us to be filled with this a wonderful sense of having God's love poured out in us. So he wants us to know that the hope of the glory of God does not put us to shame. It does not disappoint us because of God's love. It is so great. And he will say in verse 8 that we are more than conquerors because of God's love for us. Whenever I come to a text like this and and to try to preach on the love of God, I always think back to the hymn of the love of God, and I think about those great lines where he says, could we with ink the ocean fill and were the skies of parchment made, were every stalk on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade, to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. It's so true, church. 
of how great His love for us. And yet Paul wants us to understand the depth of this. He prayed, again, Ephesians 3.17, that we would be rooted and grounded in this love, that we would have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth of it, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So that's what Paul is doing here. And you see it right there in the word for, the very first word of verse 6, for. He's pausing, he's explaining, he's expounding on what he's just said. He's saying, now let's just pause and think about this love for just a minute because we can't pass by. Let's dwell on the greatness of it. Uh, This is, I think, so important to understand. The fact that he does this is a pattern Uh, that Paul uses. Sinclair Ferguson reminds us of it this when he says that you and I do not measure the greatness of God's love by our capacity to experience it. But we develop a capacity to experience it by understanding the greatness of His love. Think about that because I, I think it's so important. We do not measure the greatness of God's love by our capacity to experience it. Ferguson, I think, is right when when he says that many Christians make that mistake. We tend to, to, to live on the basis of our own experiences rather than the truth of what God has done for us. And Paul cautions us against this in, in, in this pattern that he lays out. The greatness of God is not measured in your personal experience. The greatness of God's love is not found in our hearts It's found in what God has done for us. It's grounded there. And so when you're in a hard season of life and you're trying to look to your experience uh, to, to measure the love of God, you're going to be disappointed. Here's where you need to look, Paul says. Here's where you need to pause and dwell. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. This is what He did for you. This is where your love is grounded. And you let your experience be shaped by this great knowledge of God, not the other way around. To put it in a slightly different way, and maybe broadening this principle a little bit, we might say you never grow as a Christian by looking at yourself and your own experiences. You grow by looking at Jesus. You, you start there and you stay there. It was a Robert McShane, I think, who said something to this effect. For every glance that you take at yourself, you need to take a hundred glances at Jesus. You, your, your vision needs to be Him. The Christian life is not lived by inward looking. It is, it is lived by upward looking at Jesus Christ. That is how we grow. I hope that you see this pattern in something of, of the ministry and the, the preaching here um, that, that, that we, we do every week. It, 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 so much today in the Christian life starts with the experience. It starts with the person. It begins there and, and it expands out with personal stories and anecdotes and so forth. And then it ties a little bit of Scripture in at the end. And, and, and I think that's why, in, in, in many reasons, the church is in such a poor state today because we constantly look first to ourselves and not enough at our Savior, Jesus Christ. 
If you, if you were constantly measuring yourself about how much you love him and, and your love for him and looking at yourself all of the time, we, we don't need any more encouragement to look at ourselves from this world. We get enough of that. We need to keep our eyes on Jesus. And so this is Paul's great interest here. He doesn't pause in verse 6 with the word for so that we could focus on ourselves, but he wants us to see the greatness of God's love for us and what he's done for us. Not what you have done for him, not what you need to do for him, but what he has done for you. Why? Because that is life-changing. That is, where, that, that is where life application, all of it begins and flows from in your life, is to recognize this, that this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins, 1 John 4.10. So focus on the greatness of His love. That's what Paul is doing. So what does he tell us here about the love of God? I think at least... Uh, three things I want to call your attention to. First, notice the recipients of His love. The recipients or the object of His love. He begins with a description of the people, and He uses four words to describe those whom God loves. First, He says uh, He calls them weak. Verse 6, Paul says, God's love came to us for while we were still weak, the word can be translated in several ways, and I think I looked through some of the different translations of it in your Bibles. Maybe you have the word powerless. Uh, maybe you have the word helpless. Maybe you have the word or the phrase without strength. Uh, the idea is that left to ourselves, we, we are not very lovable. We are not able to please God. We're not able to save ourselves. It was Benjamin Franklin who says that uh, uh, God helps those who help themselves. And Paul is, is saying just the opposite here. He's saying that we're helpless. We're helpless. God is doing something here for those who could not help themselves at all. Helpless, weak, powerless. And this is the testimony, by the way, of mankind apart from Christ. It's the testimony that's found all throughout the Bible. John, uh, let me give you a few verses. John 3, 3, Jesus answered him, uh, Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He cannot see it, Jesus says. He's not able to see it unless, until he is born again. John 8, 34, he says, uh, why do you not understand what I say? It is, he says, it's because you cannot bear to hear my word. You cannot, uh, speaking to the Pharisees who were rejecting him. John 14, 17, uh, speaking of the Holy Spirit, Jesus said, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. Because of their sinful nature, they're not able they cannot receive this, the Holy Spirit. Romans 8, verses 7 and 8. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, Paul says, notice, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh, verse 8, cannot please God. 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for their folly to them, and he goes on, he is not able 
to understand them because they're spiritually... Over and over again, this is the testimony of Scripture that apart from Christ and our sinful nature, without having Jesus as our Savior, we are weak We are helpless. We are powerless. We are dead in our trespasses and sins, unable to respond. And notice, secondly, a word Paul uses, the word ungodly. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Who is the recipients of this love? The weak and now the ungodly. And when you hear that word, you you should perhaps think back to a time that you've heard it again or heard it before, Romans chapter 1 verse 18, where Paul says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. Paul Paul is, is describing those who are godless, rebelling against God's word, people who do not acknowledge the existence of God, or submit their lives to Him. They do not want God to rule over them. They do not want Him to be their Lord. They do not worship Him. They they don't want their sinful acts called into question. And we see this right now in our our culture, uh, particularly at this time. Imagine the the audacity of those that that would thumb their nose at God and His Word and His His created order the natural order that he has created to designate a whole month as pride month, to take pride in their sins. And yet that is what's happening. That's what happened. Ungodly does not accept the righteousness of God or his moral standards. A third word Paul uses down in verse 8, sinners. While we were sinners, he says. So we have the weak Uh, We have the ungodly, now we have sinners. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It means that we did not keep God's laws. We did not hit the mark. We failed. We were unrighteous before Him. And then verse 10, which we'll talk more about next week, the word enemies. We were enemies of God. That's kind of a term that summarizes those first three. Uh, But it's more. It means that we're not only unable and weak, and opposed to God and violators of His law, we're, we're also opposed to God in, in the sense that, that we would attack Him and destroy Him if we could. Uh, like, like the Pharisees, we see it in the Gospels, who set out to kill Jesus, not just to reject Him, but to kill Him. John 3.20, for everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light. So think of Paul's description here. Enemies, sinners, ungodly, unable, unable to escape the wrath of God, unable to escape the coming judgment in hell. And this is all of the backdrop of God's love. This is where he starts. It was not when we became believers that Christ died for us. It's when we were sinners that He died for us. Christ doesn't come to die for you because you believe in Him. He died for us when we were weak, when we were powerless, when we were ungodly, when we were sinful. And this is the greatness of His love. You remember the story in the Gospels of the paralyzed man who was carried by his friends to Jesus. And remember, the crowd was so great, they cut a hole in the roof um, to let him down, um, to get him to Jesus. Think of that, being so weak and unable that you couldn't come to Jesus. 
Some of you perhaps have had weakness like that, or you know of a loved one who's had weakness where they just could not do anything for themselves. This is the kind of imagery Paul is using here. That's us. How could we ever live? How could we ever find hope and forgiveness? And then Jesus says to that paralyzed man with such amazing love, he says, son, your sins are forgiven. Take up your mat. Go home. That's a picture of salvation. That's how much Jesus loves us. He came to die for us, not when we were strong, not when we become believers, not when we had done enough good works, not when we could help ourselves. He came to us while we were weak, ungodly, sinners, enemies. He loved us. He died for us that we could be forgiven and have eternal life. And if he's speaking to you today... By all means, you should respond to His love. Turn from your sins and turn to Jesus. The greatness of His love is seen also, I think, in the timing of His love. Verse 6, for while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. What does that mean, at the right time? I think there's a, a few possibilities Uh, that would reflect something of the greatness of his love. First, we might say that the death of Christ was planned uh, in eternity. And the Scripture tells us that. In in Acts chapter 2, verse 22, in Peter's sermon, he said this, Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Peter would later give more clarity to this in 1 Peter 1. He says, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the times, in the last times for the sake of you. That's hard to get your mind around, isn't it? when he talks about right time, but it reminds us that God's love for us is not an afterthought, but something planned from the very, uh, from the very beginning in, in eternity past. It could also mean the right time that this love was prophesied by Scripture. Um, we don't have time to look up all the prophecies, but, but you can think about all of those prophecies and promises in the Old Testament leading up to the time of Christ. Sproul writes this, throughout the whole Old Testament, in the activity of God ministering to His people and creating a nation for Himself out of Israel and giving them the law and the prophets and ministering to them through the entire sojourn, God was ripening history of the moment that Christ would come. Galatians 4.4 tells us that when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, Jesus. And so it could have meant that. It also could mean something at the right time. It could also just mean that Jesus came and, and died at a time when we were not expecting it. Uh, that, uh, again, playing off the idea that, that when we were weak, at the right time He came. When we weren't expecting it, when we weren't ready. I mean, if you think about this and, 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 and dwell on it a, a bit, just, if God had said, I'm going to send my son Jesus after, after you all, after we had been obedient for, you know, a year or two, when you guys get everything right, then I'm going to send my son. 
That's pretty hopeless because he, he would have never sent him. Amen? But at the right time, when we were weak, or, or we might say in the nick of time, in the nick of time, and, and, and I wonder, even as I prepare this and as I preach this message, is, is, is this message coming to someone today in the nick of time? Maybe you came today in weakness and ungodliness, and perhaps you've been trying to earn God's love. Perhaps you're trying to measure God's love by the personal experiences of your life, and things seem to be falling apart. Times have been hard. There's loss. Again, do not try to measure God's love in your experience, but rather look to Jesus Christ and what He has done for you at the right time. When you were weak, ungodly, and sinful, He died for you. This leads us thirdly to the necessity of His love. And this might be the key to understanding the greatness of His love here. Verse 6, for while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. There's a reason why Christ died at the right time. It wasn't simply to demonstrate or to show His love, but it was to die for the ungodly in their place. And so you might, you might have based God's love on what has or have, hasn't happened in your life, your circumstances, your trials and blessings, but a much greater measurement is what Jesus has done for you. He had to die for you. It was necessary for salvation. Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death. If you've stayed in your weakness, if you stay in your ungodliness, if you stayed in your sinful state, or you're facing an eternal death and judgment as an enemy of God, but Jesus came and died in your place for your sins. That's why there's a world of theology and greatness in that little word for. It means on behalf of, in the place of, for the sake of. And, and that little word is the, is the truth of the substitutionary atonement, the death of Jesus Christ for us. He died in our place for our benefit, and He had to die in our place if we're to have the salvation that we have. Think of this, Lawson wrote this again, the just, that is Jesus, the just died for the unjust. The perfectly godly died for the ungodly. The one who was perfectly holy died on behalf of and for the benefit of those who were unholy. That's amazing love. First John 4.10, again, I read it earlier, and this is love, not that we've loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. It's not our love for God that brought our salvation. It's not our love for God that brought forgiveness of sins. It's not our love for God that paid for our sin debt before Him. Our love did not appease God's wrath. No, God loved. God sent. God initiated. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. 
while we were still sinners, that is, representing all that is undesirable and distasteful and rebellious and repugnant, Christ died for us. It was Charles Wesley who wrote this of of that love. He says, and can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain, for me who him to death pursued. Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? You see, this is the greatest need of our lives, the saving love of God through the death of His Son, Jesus Christ. Verses 7 and 8 are kind of a commentary on verse 6. Verse 7, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's difficult in the English to see this, but in each one of those phrases, Paul ends with essentially this same verb, he died. So, verse 6, for the ungodly, Christ died. Verse 7, for a righteous person, that is a decent person, one would scarcely die. Verse 7, perhaps for a good person, somebody who is loved, one might die. Verse 8, but for us who are sinners, Christ died. He died. Over and over again, the death of Jesus Christ is emphasized by Paul. He died. He died. He died. He died. It's why the gospel writers focus so much of their message on the last week of Jesus' life when he died. They're saying to us over and over again, he came into the world for this purpose, to die for us, to die for the ungodly, the sinner, like you and me. Don't you see the significance of this? God shows his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died. He loves you that much. He died to save you. You see why this message is so important? It's his saving love that makes all the difference in our lives. It's his saving love. And the fact that he's come to you, that Paul says there, verse 5, that this love has been poured out into your heart through the Holy Spirit, this is life-giving. This is life-changing. Imagine saying to the paralytic who is being lowered by his friends, imagine, you you don't need Jesus to, to give you a sermon here, what it means to be a good friend or some practical application in your life about perseverance or, or, or something. You need to love yourself more. No, you need to hear the, desperately the words, your sins are forgiven. God has set his love on you. Rise up. Take your mat and go. If he's calling you to his love, by all means today, open your heart to him. Someone once tried to explain the greatness of God's love from John 3.16. With each word or phrase of the verse, there was a descriptive phrase that was added beside it. God, the greatest lover, so loved the greatest degree, the world, the greatest company, that he gave the greatest act, his only son, 
the greatest gift. That whoever believes the greatest opportunity, in him the greatest attraction, should not perish the greatest promise, but the greatest difference, have the greatest certainty, eternal life, the greatest possession. And the title of it was Christ, the greatest gift. Can you think of anything better, anything greater than the love of God through Jesus Christ? You can't because there's not anything greater than this. If you are in Christ and Christ in you, you have this assurance. This love has been poured into your hearts. God loves you. He loves you. Jesus died for you. Hallelujah. What a Savior. What a Savior. If your eyes have been opened today for this time to see His love and hear His voice calling you, rise up, turn from your sins, and trust Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for this amazing love that You have shown us in Christ. And I pray today that you would root us in it and ground us in it as we've been praying, uh, that we would never doubt it, but that we would comprehend it with all the saints. Help us now to do that as we come to your table. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast. I'm Pastor Jason Clark, and if you don't have a church home, I want to personally invite you to First Baptist Mount Washington. We're striving to be word-centered, gospel-focused, and community-minded. Learn more about our church and our meeting times from our website, fbcmw.org.